0: Generation Church, based in the beautiful Rex Theater in the heart of downtown Pensacola, Florida. Our hope is that today's teaching will encourage and equip you to be firm in faith, to fulfill the call of God in your life, and to finish well. Grab your Bible, open up your notes app, and let's dive in. Psalms 131, I have calmed and quieted my soul. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. How you guys doing? Good, I hope. If you're tuning in online, we're glad you're here as well. It's such a beautiful morning this morning, and I'm I'm still in awe just of how much God has been speaking this morning. Even in the first service, um, I just had this sense that God is really moving, and I feel it still in this service. And um, I just I just ask that. As I'm bringing some of the word to you this morning, as we go through Psalm 131, you would try to keep in mind all the things that you've heard so far this morning in worship and with what Michael shared and pastors Luis and Pastor, um, Pastor Roger shared. Um, because there's a, there's a lot that the Holy Spirit is doing throughout this morning as his word is going forth. And it all really connects, and I'm just left in awe once again at how the Spirit moves, even when we, we're we not paying attention, right? I could never have orchestrated what's happening this morning. It's only God and His power and His Spirit that does it. And so, just I, I hope that I can point out some of these connections that God is laying on my heart, but I might miss it, so I'm hoping you guys are... Attentive enough to maybe connect some of these dots yourselves. But you may be thinking, all right, three verses. This is going to be a short sermon. We can get out, and get ready for the Super Bowl. But hold on. God is moving. And so let's see how the spirit leads. Um, I was telling a few people this morning that I cut out like three pages of notes, and it's still a lot. There's so much richness in this short psalm. And Charles Spurgeon actually says that it is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. It speaks of a young child, but it contains the experience of a man in Christ. And so we're in this series called Journey Up, and we're looking at these psalms that were a guidebook to the Israelites as they journeyed up to Jerusalem for three feasts of the year, and it wasn't just a physical journey up, you know, they had to walk through the valleys and then ascend again to Jerusalem, that's true, but it wasn't just a physical journey, but it's sort of a metaphor for a spiritual journey as well, because they would sing these psalms in order, and they would remember what God has done, what God is doing currently, and then remember his promises for the future as they're journeying up to Jerusalem to be in his presence. So it's this beautiful physical and spiritual journey into the presence of the Lord. And in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Eugene Peterson describes this journey as a life lived upward toward God, an existence that advanced from one level to another in developing maturity and that's what Psalm 131 is really about. David is talking about this developing maturity as he writes about childlike humility, contentment, and hopeful waiting on the Lord. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer and then let's unpack this short but sweet and amazing psalm. Lord God, I thank you for your spirit that is moving this morning. I thank you God for the preparation I've made to bring your word to your people this morning. I ask God that I would be able to speak truth and speak life by your spirit, by your word. And I ask God that your word would wash us, would make us clean, help us to receive your truth, receive your love, and then help us to apply it to our lives and help us to share it with others. In Jesus' name, all the saints said, amen. And so verse 1 David starts out saying, "O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Here in verse 1, David declares his humbled heart. We've talked a little bit about heart this morning through Pastor Roger's transition. But what the Bible tells about the heart is that it's sort of the seat of our emotions. It's that spiritual part of us where our our emotions live. And scripture says that we could be wise of heart and that our hearts can be upright and righteous. We can have pure hearts. Our heart can be pious and it can be good. But the Bible also warns us that our heart is desperately wicked. It's naturally wicked because of sin. And Jesus points this out himself in Mark chapter 7 when he says, For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. It comes from the heart because of sin. This passage that this passage that Jesus said in mark it, it's similar to that list we heard in Colossians chapter three, but this is the state of our heart with with sin in our lives. We have a heart problem, apart from the saving grace of God, we have a hard heart, but God takes our hard heart of stone and he transforms it into a soft and regenerated heart, a heart of flesh, as the Bible says. And because we have this sinful heart, some people say that we shouldn't sing any of the Psalms of David because if we're honest, we can't really say that our hearts are not lifted up and our eyes are not raised too high. But David was far from perfect. He was a good example for us, but he wasn't perfect. And in the same way, we'll fail to hit the mark, but the point is to try to follow What God's word says. So, some people say you shouldn't sing the Psalms of David, but a famous Bible commentator from the 17th century, Matthew Henry, he counters this by saying that we can sing it for the same reason that we read it to teach and admonish ourselves and one another what we ought to be, with repentance that we have come short of being so, and humble prayer to God for his grace to make us so. And so David wasn't perfect. We're not perfect either. And so we can join David when he says things like, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Or create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. We can join him in saying this. We can join him in saying, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. Because that's the goal that we're called to. And so if we look at David's example, he declares his humbled heart by avoiding what I'm calling this morning roadblocks to humility. There's these roadblocks that we encounter on our journey up to God, these sort of potholes that can trip us up on our journey, on our path to faith and discipleship. The first roadblock to humility is pride. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. In the book of Proverbs, it has a lot of wisdom. It's a book that's full of wisdom on pride and humility. In just a few examples here, in Proverbs 11, verse 2, it says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Or Proverbs 29, verse 3, One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. You see, David understood this principle that's outlined in Proverbs. In Proverbs 3:34, there's this principle that's repeated in the New Testament in both James chapter 4 and 1 Peter chapter 5. And the truth is that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so, like David, we need to learn to reject pride in our heart and say, O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. Then the second roadblock to humility is arrogance. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. You see, arrogance and pride, they're kind of similar. They go hand in hand. But whereas pride is a high view of self, arrogance is a low view of others. And so as our eyes are raised high, we're looking down at other people and we're kicking them while they're low and we're trying to see how we can exploit them for our own gain. That's what pride and arrogance does in our heart. And so we have to try to avoid and reject arrogance. Proverbs, again, has much wisdom on arrogance and humility. You're probably familiar with this famous verse in Proverbs 16, verse 18, that says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That word haughty means arrogantly superior. So you could say, Pride goes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. These are sin that's in our heart, pride and arrogance that we need to reject. In Proverbs 18.12, it says, Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. And so we see in the Old Testament and Proverbs these warnings and these consequences for pride and arrogance, but we also see encouragement and reward for humility and lowliness of spirit. And so that's what we're called to. And Jesus himself, he says the same thing. In Luke 14, verse 11, he says, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So there's this idea that Jesus' kingdom is inverted or upside down. It's never exactly what you expect. You would expect that if you get on top, well then you're the greatest. But Jesus says, if you want to be the greatest in heaven, you have to be the most humble on earth. And the only person that was a perfect example for humility was Jesus. It wasn't David. It wasn't any of the prophets. It wasn't any of the apostles. It was Jesus. He is our example. But the apostles have much to say about humility as well. In 1 Peter, Peter talks about us being humble with other believers and being humble before the Lord. He says that if you humble yourself, then at the right time, God will lift you up. And in James, he talks about how pride and arrogance can lead to us fighting and can lead to disunity in the church. So there's a danger there when we have pride and arrogance in our hearts. He says that we desire what we don't have and we covet what other people have. And so we quarrel and we fight and he brings it to the extreme. He says we murder, maybe not actual physically murder, but character assassination is a word that comes to mind when we gossip and we talk about each other. Humble yourself. We seek what the world has to offer and we look to the world for fulfillment instead of seeking God And finding fulfillment in him. And so James has strong words with us. He says that if we want to be friends with the world, we make ourselves enemies of God. And I imagine that's not a place that any of us want to be. as enemies of all-powerful God. But that's the danger. But it says that God gives more grace. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then James encourages us to submit to God, to draw near to him. He encourages us to cleanse our hands and to purify our hearts. And he encourages us to despise our sins, despise pride and arrogance in our hearts, and repent of them. And when we do, like David, we can reject pride and arrogance in our hearts. But then we have a third roadblock to humility that we have to battle against. And that's selfish ambition. In the second half of verse 1, David says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. You see, pride and arrogance, when it becomes the driving force behind how we live our lives, that's where selfish ambition comes in. We have this pride and we have this arrogance. And it's leading us to desire things for selfish reasons. And this is completely opposite of where we should be with godly aspirations. Things God has put on our heart. The call that he has on our lives. The Apostle Paul, he says that he presses on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's godly aspiration. But with this sin problem we have in our heart, a lot of times we fall into this trap, this pit, this pothole of selfish ambition. Eugene Peterson, he, he talks about how the basic sin has become basic wisdom in the world today. And what he's talking about there is that the basic sin is pride He says it's the sin that got Satan kicked out of heaven and it's the sin that got Adam kicked out of the Garden of Eden. But the world takes pride and it dresses it up in gold and ribbons and it calls it a virtue. And so whereas this basic sin of pride is detestable to God and it's something that we should reject in our hearts, the world says, hey, as long as you're on the top, everything's okay. It doesn't matter who you have to step on, who you have to climb over to get to the top. It's good to be the king. That's what the world says. And so when, when it's held up on all sides as a virtue, sometimes it's hard to see pride in our hearts as a problem. But if you look at scripture over and over and over again, it warns against pride and it encourages us to be Humble. And so here's a few questions that you can ask yourself to kind of get an idea of how you can tell between godly aspirations and selfish ambition. The question is, is your, are your eyes focused on God or are your eyes focused on self? And so just for a few examples, why do you want to lose weight? Summer's coming, is it to get a nice beach body, and get that ready, you know? Are you wanting to lose weight out of pride and conceit? Or do you want to live a healthy life so that you have more years on this earth to better serve the Lord? That's the question we have to ask. Are are our eyes focused on God or are they focused on ourselves? Or how about this? Why do you want to get a promotion at work? Is it so that you can have greater influence over more people? So that you can share the gospel as you go about your business? So you can share the love and the truth of Jesus with your coworkers and the people around you with your customers? Or do you want that promotion so that you can show those people who said you'd never amount to anything what's what? Are your eyes on God or are your eyes on self? Or how about this one? I have to ask myself this question a lot. Why do you want to study God's word? Is it to win arguments and debate? Or is it to win Christ? Do you want to know what you believe and why you believe it so that you can share it with people around you? Or do you want to learn the latest theological fad so that you can tell people how they're wrong and they have no idea what it means to be Christian? (coughs) These intellectual and mental pursuits, whether it's in God's, God's word or knowledge about God, or if it's in medicine, or science, or any realm of your sphere of influence, if there's these intellectual and mental pursuits, there's a danger for us. And what the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 8, he says that we all have this knowledge, but knowledge puffs up. Knowledge causes pride in our hearts. And so... This knowledge can put us out of balance if it's not balanced with the love of God that raises and builds people up. I know I've kind of struggled with this a bit. Sometimes I'll be studying a particular thing and then I think I know it all and then anybody who has a differing opinion, well, they're automatically wrong. Never mind that I've heard convincing arguments on both sides of any topic that you can think of. Sometimes when you start to learn more and you start to gain knowledge, really all you find out is that you don't know anything at all, right? And that's a good place to be. That's a great place to be. But it takes this rejection of pride and arrogance and selfish ambition so that you can get to a place where your focus is on God and He's the reason why you're doing all these things. And so we have these roadblocks to humility, pride, arrogance, and selfish ambition, And David is a good example for us, but he's not a perfect example. For the perfect example, we turn to Jesus. And in Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul, he's talking about humility in the church, humility towards one another. And it's this humility that we have that instead of bringing disunity because we covet and we want what other people have, Instead of disunity, there's unity that comes through humility. But then starting in verse 5, he gives an example of Jesus and his humility. The Apostle Paul says, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Wow emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the most torturous, painful, agonizing death. He humbled himself. God, all-existent God, the Logos, as he's called in John chapter 1, who was with God and was God from the beginning, he didn't see his deity as something to hold on to. Instead, he humbled himself in obedience to the Father. And the reason he did it was for one purpose, and that was to go to the cross to pay the sin for us sinners who have this pride and arrogance in our hearts. And he showed us what perfect humility looks like, and he is our perfect example to model it's not easy. But if we believe in Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit in us who helps us to be humble. In Matthew 11 I think I've probably heard this portion of the passage of scripture every week we've been in this series, but in Matthew 11 Jesus says, "Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest." Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the only place in Scripture where Jesus describes his own character. You can see in Scripture what Jesus' character is like by the miracles that he did, by the things that he said, by things people said of him and what the disciples, the apostles taught about Jesus, we can gain knowledge of his character there. But this is the only place where Jesus describes his own character. And he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. He's gentle, he's meek. And this word lowly in heart means humble. Jesus is gentle and humble. And it is in the rest of the gentle, humble, all-powerful and glorious Savior that we can find contentment. And David seems to have understood this with what was revealed to him. Of course, as you know, he was living during the Old Testament history. And so the Spirit hadn't come yet, Jesus hadn't come yet, but he believed in the Word of God, what God had revealed to him. And he seems to have understood this principle. And so in verse 2, David declares his contented soul. We talked a little bit about heart, and now we we'll are talk a little bit about the soul. The heart and soul are the spiritual part of us where our mind, our will, and our emotions live. And the Bible says that our soul can be strong and, or unsteady. Our soul could be lost or it could be saved. Our soul could be anxious or calm. It says our soul needs atonement, and through the works and our faith in Jesus, it is purified and protected. The soul is that unique part of us that God created that distinguishes us between each other and between the rest of nature. It's this unique unique creation is our soul. It's said that you don't have a soul, you are a soul and you have a body. Or you are a soul and you have a spirit. We're living souls And the Bible says that our souls can be strong, can be saved, can be calm. And this is what David is talking to in verse 2. He says, But I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Notice he's saying, I have calmed my soul. God didn't do it for him. Sure, God Works through him by his choices to quiet his soul. But it's like we sang this morning Come on, my soul. Don't you get shy on me. We can talk to our soul. We can encourage our soul to do the things that it's called to do. Elsewhere, David says, Why are you cast down, oh, my soul? He's talking to his soul. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. This period of weaning in the Israelite culture happened around age three to four years old. And it was this time where the nursing care of the child from the time of birth continued on until the weaning was complete. And so there's a broader meaning for the word wean than just to wean a child from the mother. It means to deal fully with or to be brought to completion. And so you can see this sort of imagery that David is using. A, A nursing child, they look to their mother for food and for nourishment, and that's about it, right? Maybe comfort if they're feeling particularly upset, right? But it's a seeking of what mom has to offer them. That's what, a nur- that's what a nursing child is thinking about. But a weaned child is content to sit in their mother's lap, not wanting what she can provide for them, but just being comfortable in her presence. That's what David is talking about here. He's talking about the maturity that comes with realizing our need for God's presence over his blessing. I like what Michael shared where he said that you don't know how much you need Jesus until Jesus is all you have. That's the point that we need to get to is where we come to God just to be in his presence. We don't come to him as a nursing child seeking his blessings, seeking his help. Sure, those things will come but what we need to do is mature enough in our faith to where we have this childlike humility and we come to the Lord simply to be in his presence. That's what David is looking, looking towards. He's calmed and quieted his soul so that his soul is in a place where it's mature. It's not wanting just what God has for him. It's wanting the presence of God. I found it f- Pretty, not, pretty interesting in my studies how David is here, he's looking at being childlike. Well, Jesus refers to children a lot in his ministry on this earth. He uses children as an example for us many times in scripture. And so just a few here for us to consider. In Matthew eleven twenty five, 25, he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Or in Mark 10, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That's some strong words. Matthew 18, 1-4. At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's whoever is humble, whoever is gentle, whoever is lowly in heart, those that lower their hearts and lower their eyes in conscious, childlike humility, it, it's those who are before the Lord, not seeking what he has to offer, but seeking his presence. Those are the, who are childlike and who can enter the kingdom of heaven. The Apostle Paul in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11, he says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And so David, he's showing a developing maturity where you go from being a nursing child to being a weaned child, not looking to God for what he has to offer, but only for who he is. And then the Apostle Paul, he talks about this this maturity as well. Like he's becoming a man in Christ. And so there's things that are childish he, that he's letting go. And so God, in his mercy, he weans us from his giftings. I'm thinking about how when I first came to trust in Jesus, like every day seemed like a miracle, right? God was moving. I was seeing miracles. So much was changing in my life. I was giving up different things that I had no business taking part in, and it was great. But then at a certain point, it kind of feels like, are you still there, God? Michael touched on it before that second song as well. You know, God, sometimes he'll start to withdraw all these things that he has for you in order that you get to a place where you're not seeking those things, you're just seeking him. That's one way that God will wean us as we mature in faith. And another way God will wean us is by removing things in our life. Maybe it's TV shows that we watch. Maybe it's music that we listen to. God can make it to where those things no longer appeal to us. And if, if you read your Bible, you study scripture, you come to understand that there's so much that this world offers that as Christians we have no business having any part of and it's these things that I pray God would work out of me. I've got a long way to go, but that, that's the heart cry. That's what David is getting at here. Lord, help me to calm and quiet my soul. Wean me from the things you have for me. I just want your presence. And God, wean me from the things this world has to offer because it's all garbage compared to you. Yes, there's good things in the world, but you get the point. It's where our heart is. Is it on God or is it on self? A contented soul is childlike, not childish. And that's the point. We're to be like children, but not be childish in our walk with God. If we calm and quiet our soul with childlike humility, we can find rest, comfort, and contentment in God. And so, Ben, you can come up as I start to close and we move on. To verse 3 here. It's this amazing picture because David is talking about his heart and he's rejecting pride and arrogance and selfish ambition. And he's not seeking power or position above what God has for him. And he's talking about how he doesn't want what the world has to offer. He doesn't even want what God has to offer, just his presence, just who God is. But here in verse 3, he moves his focus from himself to others. And King David is looking to his kingdom. And he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. It's almost like David is saying, Listen, I've found the keys to rejecting pride, arrogance, and selfish ambition. And I have found contentment in the Lord. I pray, Israel, that you would as well. And that's my prayer for us this morning, that just like David, we too can get to a point where we can say, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. In verse three here, David encourages eternal hope. We have eternal hope because God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. His promises remain and we can trust in that. Another commentator that I've recently started reading his commentaries on scripture, he has this to say about verse 3. His name is Warren Weersby. He says, in the Christian vocabulary, hope is not hope so. It is joyful anticipation of what the Lord will do in the future based on his changeless promises. Like the child being weaned, we may fret at our present circumstances, but we know that our fretting is wrong. Our present circumstances are the womb out of which new blessings and opportunities will be born. And so I encourage you this morning to hope in the Lord put your trust in him. Trust in his character, his promises, his plan, and his timing. Maybe you're here this morning and you'd say that you already put your trust in him, but if you're honest, maybe that trust is starting to wane a little bit. Maybe you're feeling this this tension of an experience with God that doesn't seem quite as it did when you first came to him. I just want to encourage you that that may be the Lord weaning you off of his blessings so that you can mature to a place where all you want is Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never put your trust in Jesus. I pray that this morning God would make you his child And then he would make you a weaned child. If you've never put your trust in him before, I pray that you would do that this morning because the Bible says that today is the day for salvation. Trust and hope, it starts now and it continues forever. So if you haven't put your trust in Jesus, I just want you to... Consider doing that this morning. It's really simple. The Bible says that all you have to do is confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. So all you have to do is say, Jesus, I need you. I have this heart that is full of pride, but I don't want to live that way. I want to live the life that you died for me to have. There's this passage in Jeremiah chapter 17 that's both sobering and promising. And I want to close today with sharing what the prophet Jeremiah had to say. He was speaking for the Lord and he says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come he shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. That doesn't sound like life. That sounds like death. So I want to encourage us to be more like this next person that Jeremiah talks about. In verse 7, he says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. This is a picture of life, of refreshing, cool water that God provides for us when we trust in Jesus. And so I'm asking you, O Israel, put your trust in the Lord today and forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. I pray, God, that where I fall short in effectively communicating your word, God, that you would fill in the gaps. Help us, Lord, to come to you in humility, rejecting pride, arrogance, and selfish ambition. Change our hearts, Lord. It's only in your presence that we can experience transformation So God, I ask that our only desire would be you, would be your presence. You know what we need. God, help us to get to a place where whether or not we receive what we think you owe us or what we think you desire to give us, whether or not we receive these things, God, help us to get to a place where all we want is you, nothing more, nothing less. I ask God that you would seal your word in our hearts this morning. Help us to apply it to our lives and help us to share it with others this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for hanging out with us at Generation. You can connect with us on Facebook or Instagram at Pensacola or go to the website at GenerationPensacola.com and from wherever you download your podcasts. If today's teaching impacted you, we'd love to hear about it. So please drop us a note.